Father, we do thank you for the evening. We thank you, Father, for your word. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to just gather together in peace and to study your word. We do pray, Father, that you would just take this hour and uh, fill us with what you would have us have from these studies. We pray, Father, that your spirit would increase in each of us uh, 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 hunger and appetite and a, a willingness to learn from your word, Father. We just thank you for this time and pray that you would help us accomplish what you would have us accomplish. In fact, Father, we would pray that you would accomplish your purpose in each of us, not just this hour, but in our entire lives as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're beginning session 12, in which we will attempt to explore chapters 25 and 26 of the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we're in chapter 25, we're going to hear more about the sanctification of the kingdom, various things that they should be doing to, to properly represent God as, their, as his covenant people. And uh, in the first 12 verses, we'll have the final laws on the sanctification of the kingdom. And uh, uh, we'll also talk about, uh, uh, subsequent to that, the laws of reverence for the family and uh, the other orders in the kingdom. So all of this will echo, if you will, what we would call the golden rule. But uh, the first 19 verses are going to deal with the sanctity of the individual. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there be a controversy between men, and they come into judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that that judge shall cause him to, be, to lie down and be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. The intent here is that it be done orderly and against some kind of objective function and not out of vengeance or anger or hate. That's part of the undergirding here. But it's interesting that the whole idea of the judges is to justify the righteous and to condemn the wicked. One of the great tragedies in our jurisprudence is that um, it's done imperfectly. That too often uh, the innocent are judged guilty and the guilty go free. And uh, uh, I had the opportunity to visit one of the premier prisons uh, recently uh, in Angola, Louisiana, the Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's a model studied by all over the world. It's, it's, it's run by a, a warden that's a born-again Christian, and he runs a tough ship, tight ship, but he has restored the dignity of the individual inmates. There's about 5,000 inmates there. 85% will die there. Um, 1,600 of the 5,000 are professing Christians. They have a 200-person Bible college, and they have their own Christian radio station. It's a very interesting, it was a very interesting visit. We visited uh, 13 guys on death row. Uh, some of them have had uh, pardons written by the parole board nine years ago and still unsigned by the governor. They're still there. There's private estimates by the people running the place that half the inmates really don't belong there. There's one fellow, it's all recorded on video. He, uh, you can get this video from A&E, by the way. It's, a, it's called The Farm. It's a very interesting study of the whole operation. But one of the six people they studied through the thing is a guy that was uh, convicted of rape and given a 100-year sentence without parole. After 20 years there, he learned enough about exculpatory evidence and how he got it, so he got evidence to present the parole board, which he did. 
which included, among other things, the fact that the woman admitted that she could not tell one Negro from another. He also points out he was the only one handcuffed in the lineup in which he was fingered and also showed medical evidence that the woman that was the accuser was a virgin after the rape. And despite all this, the, he did not get his... Uh, they listened to him politely after he left the room. They said he did it. And they signed off. Uh, he's still there. So so it's a, our jurisprudence system is one that uh, uh, certainly is needing improvement. But certainly the goal is that they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. One of the great tragedies in our society is the uh, exploitation of technicalities and laws of evidence and so forth um, to uh, cloud that issue, to muddy it up. It's interesting, in the British courts, the primary issue before the bar is the guilt or the innocence of the accused. All other matters are secondary to that. There are other matters, laws of evidence and so forth. In the U.S. courts, tragically, the laws of evidence seem to precede any consideration of whether the guy is guilty or innocent. Many times the thing will be thrown out because of some technical infraction rather than uh, the issue at really the real issue at bar. But anyway, we'll move on. And if there's and of course if there's judgment should be done objectively, which is verse two. Forty stripes he may give him, but not to exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother would seem vile unto thee, and so forth. This is the where they get the thirty nine stripes. The idea is not to go over 40, so they say 39 is the limit. Is the, is the, that's where that comes from. Now we get to verse 4. Just a little verse here that seems uh, <laughs> out of place. It's just a single verse. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Now if you're reading through Deuteronomy, this thing jumps out at you, and it's just, okay, that's interesting. That means when you're, 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 you're plowing a, or when you've got a, an ox that's a beast of burden as a, a primary form of you know, motion here that uh, you should allow him to eat while he goes. Well, what, you know, what's that got to do with anything? Well, fortunately, we have a lot of New Testament uh, clarity on this. It doesn't just refer to um, the ox, it ref- and it doesn't just refer to wages earned. Um, so, in fact, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9 to 11. Paul tells us, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth the corn. Here's that very verse that we're looking at. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thrasheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? In other words, uh, Paul is arguing that a prophet is worthy of his hire. And uh, so... The, uh, so I thought I'd mention that to you as you leave the place. There's an offering box by each door. And, <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm kidding. Sort of. Um, okay. The, uh, 1 Timothy 5.18. Let the elders that rule well, excuse me, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Here's Paul using the same reference again. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And he goes on. I dug this out, of course, because of this allusion to, the, uh, to uh, Deuteronomy. 
But I was startled to see linked to this another the flip side of this. On the one hand, the, the labor is worthy of his reward, but too often we reward the elder with hearsay, gossip. It's interesting that he says uh, should not receive an accusation but before two or three witnesses. It astonishes me to see how often prominent Christian speakers on radio broadcasts will attack a brother in the Lord without ever having spoken to him first. You know, it's interesting how many ministries seem to make it their primary doctrine to accuse the brethren. You see, I happen to know where that doctrine comes from. I know who the accuser of our brethren is. And, uh, but it, it really shocks me if, if Time Magazine or one of the secular publications is going to mention me in some context, before it goes to press, they will call me, let me know, and try to solicit a comment. In other words, they don't do it behind my back. That's not true of Christian publications. There have been books printed with three or four anecdotes, all of which are provably false, that never call. And, of course, uh, as I called the publisher, they're red-faced because it turned out they had bought the manuscript somebody, they, they, under some false pretenses. It's a long story. And I might add, in one very prominent case, the author came to me and made peace and apologized. Um, but uh, what really astounds me is how many people on the radio and in the public airwaves make disparaging, libelous, slanderous comments, slander verbally, libel in printing, um, comments about Christians that are not true, not checked out, and perhaps most, the most uh, inexcusable thing, not talked with, uh, with a person beforehand. Getting, is this true? What's your reaction? Is this you know, hearing the other guy's side at least, or at least checking out the truth? Um, it, it really, it really shocks me. You know, I, 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 it's my suspicion. I can't prove this, but it's my suspicion. It's substantially worse in the Christian community because there's no accountability in the business world. If some of these things were going on, it would be less than 24 hours. They would be getting a letter from my attorney. Because in the business world, you can't get away with these kinds of things without some form of accountability. And uh, uh, that's, just the, that's just the reality of that place. So it's self-policing to a certain extent. In the Christian world, there's the presumption, first of all, we don't, more often than not, we don't want to sue a brother, according to, 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 to uh, some people's reading of, the, of one of Paul's epistles. But even aside from that, there have been a number of cases where the wrong, and I'm guilty of this too, is swept under the carpet rather than declared. There have been some, there have been some uh, incredible uh, abuses of intellectual property rights, uh, of thievery of various kinds. I don't mean of dollars, but I mean of, of, of the other corporate assets. Um, and rather than have a spectacle in the community, we just let it go and let the Lord deal with it. And I can argue for that. As a, in fact, I have argued for that on our board on some situations. And yet, the tragedy is when there's no accountability, there's no accountability, and it gets worse. See, that's one of the problems in our country at the highest levels. I personally believe we will not return to a rule of law in this country until there's accountability for the previous administration and its abuses. 
There certainly isn't any attempt to bring accountability, and because of that, I think that the nation's being defrauded. Anyway, let's move on. Oh, there's another thing that I might share with you. Um, one of the problems in some organizations is the lack of what's called an objective function. You know, the objective function is, can't you tell if you're winning? If you're on a sports team, you know whether you're winning or losing. You've got all kinds of statistics and scores and so forth to let you know how you're doing. If you're on a sales, a properly managed sales team, same thing. You've made your quota or you haven't. You've, 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 you're making your numbers or you're not. If you're in the military in wartime, you can tell painfully whether you're winning or losing. There are a number of organizations in which there is no apparent what we call an objective function. It's all subjective. Schools are like that. Is the school doing a good job or a bad job? Well, you can try to get some statistics on the performance of the students, but that is long after the fact, and it isn't, doesn't operate in a, in a way of really bringing accountability in the school operation. So they, and it's hospital the same way, because uh, how do you measure how good a hospital is? You know, I remember being in a waiting room once, and a little sign said, you know, 7,865 people found their way to health last year. And this guy, I kept wondering how many didn't, you know. Uh, but still, you know, we, uh, and churches are probably the worst of the bunch because how can you tell if you're doing a good job? By counting the members? That's not the goal of a church. God adds to those that will come. So the point is, in the absence of an objective function, you have substitute proxy functions. Typically, what we sometimes call politics. It certainly is ruled by hearsay, and we should be on the guard for that in places where there is an objective function. In many organizations, if you're on a sports team or a sales team or even the military, the guy that's the real performer, the peer group knows he is, and, and he does his job. And his, he does his job and they win. Um, in schools, hospitals, and churches, as just an example, um, uh, everybody has to you know, uh, deal with the absence of yardsticks on performance, real performance, objective performance. Anyway, enough of that. Let's move on. Deuteronomy... Uh, 25 verse 5 if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child the wife of the dead shall not marry without that is outside the camp unto a stranger her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her see the intent is is to perpetuate the tribe okay and shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So this is, the, this is the, what they call the Leverite marriage. And the word Leverite comes from the Latin, um, Lever, which means husband's brother, strangely enough. Got nothing to do with Leviticus, it's a different word altogether. And uh, uh, this is in Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, as, as, and this is also what was going on, if you will, in the case of Ruth and Boaz, is that when Ruth went to Boaz, she was asking him to do to enter into what a Leverite marriage, and he could if the nearest of kin passed. That was what I recounted to you earlier. And uh, I want to point out, though, by the way, this was not compulsory. This was not compulsory. The guy might elect not to do it. In verse 7, he says, And if the man liked not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, 
My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother and name in Israel, and he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he stand to it and say, I will not take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. <laughs> now you may recall that's exactly what Boaz did. He called the elders together and he got the next of kin. says, Will you redeem the land to Naomi? He says, Great, I have no problem. I'd be glad to do that. He says, but whoever does that also has to take Naomi to wife, uh, take Ruth to wife. Well, he couldn't do that, so he passed. And he hands Boaz his shoe. And, of course, that's, to him it was a mark of disgrace, but to Boaz it was a wedding license. Because he then married Ruth, and, and it's the big climax at the end of chapter 4. Now, of course, the book of Ruth is so precious for so many reasons. It's a beautiful love story. In fact, it's studied in college in literature classes. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. It's just an elegant piece of... Of, of, of elegant love story as such, the romance of the boys and Ruth. But it's also a profound book of prophecy because you discover when you go through it the second or third time, you suddenly realize that every detail there is prophetic. Boaz, of course, is in the role of the kinsman redeemer. Who is he a type of? Jesus Christ. Sure, he's our kinsman redeemer. Um, Naomi is a type of Israel. Ruth is the bride of Boaz, right? What makes this really startling when you start looking at it more closely is that Ruth, of course, isn't Jewish. She's a Moabitess. And there's a specific law in the, in the Torah that a Moabitess cannot enter the, 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 uh, enter the congregation. But see what the law could not do, grace could. As Boaz takes her wife anyway. You say, well, how can Boaz, he's a, you know, he's a good Jewish Landowner, he's probably the, the senior guy in the city council. Um, how can he take a Moabitess as to wife? You have to know who his mother was. His mother was Rahab the harlot from Jericho days. And so it's interesting how these things all uh, come together. But what's really profound is you start looking at this more closely. Boaz, of course, is the kinsman redeemer. What's interesting is who introduces. Ruth to Boaz in chapter 2. Turns out to be an unnamed servant. The Holy Spirit throughout the scripture is always, in, a, in the typo, typology, is always an unnamed servant. In Genesis 24, when Abraham calls an unnamed servant to go get a bride for Isaac, he has a name, but you won't find it in chapter 24. You've got to go back to chapter 15, discover his name was Eliezer. Eliezer means comforter. So who introduces the bride to Boaz? An unnamed servant servant. It's interesting that in that whole story up until the end, Naomi never meets Boaz. But Ruth finds out about how to deal with Boaz through Naomi. But Naomi finds out about Boaz through Ruth. Whoa! Getting interesting, isn't it? During the thrashing floor scene, which is symbolic of the tribulation from some other passages, where is Ruth at the feet of Boaz in that strange, dark chapter 3. Um, 
and, and, and on it goes. So it's a, it's a, it's the, the more you start studying it, the more you realize it's a skillfully crafted love story. On the one hand, it's also an awesome uh, unraveling of the rest. And you will not understand Revelation chapter 5 unless you've done a th- careful study of the book of Ruth, interestingly enough. Um, this whole business of shoes, you, know, you, can all, you can take these ideas and carry them through Scripture. There's a pr- principle that the scholars like to call the principle of expositional constancy. It's just a fancy name for meaning simply this. The Holy Spirit likes to use, is consistent in the use of the symbols. You have 66 books penned by 40 different guys over thousands of years, and yet you discover there's a, a, a common thread, not just a theme, but even of structure and language and, and idioms. Study shoes. Uh, during the wilderness wanderings, their shoes miraculously did not wear out. Um, here you have uh, the shoe being a symbol of a marriage certificate. Um, John the Baptist, when he, when, he, when he confronts Jesus Christ, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, and so forth. You can, you can play with that and go all the way through. Take stones, the rock, that, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the headstone of the corner, and so forth. The rock, the water, that brings the living water twice in the Old Testament, and so forth. Um, now, there's something I want you to understand about Boaz's redemption that many scholars miss. There's some conditions. Boaz, of course, is the type of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And uh, there are four conditions that had to be met. He had his kinship. He had to be a kinsman. That's why Jesus Christ became man and walked among us, because he had to, to be a kinsman of Adam in order to redeem mankind. He had to be a kinsman. Couldn't be an angel, couldn't be some other, it had to be a kinsman of Adam. He had to have the ability to perform, obviously. That's a factor. If you were a kinsman and broke, you couldn't redeem the land or whatever, okay? And the, in fact, the kinsman that there was a kinsman couldn't take Ruth the wife for some reason. He had to be willing, wasn't obligatory, wasn't obligatory, he had to be willing to do this. But there's another condition. He had to assume all the obligations of the beneficiary. So he couldn't just redeem the land of Naomi. He had to take on all the obligations uh, of the, uh, the departed husband, namely the, the uh, taking on of Ruth as a wife. So, interesting. And so, now it's interesting, of course, he confronts the next of kin, obtains a shoe for me to take Ruth to wife. Now there's something else very subtle about the story that many people miss. This whole confrontation between the would-be wife and the near kinsman was something she was supposed to do. The Torah says that she was to go to him and ask him to do it, and if he didn't do it, he, she was to spit on him and she would get the shoe in return and so forth, right? That didn't happen in Ruth 4. Boaz went there representing her and did it for her, Right? That's interesting. Jesus did the whole thing. He represented us on that cross. He was the one that redeemed us. He did 100% of it. We didn't even show up, if you will, okay? So to speak, okay. There's another issue of this Leverite marriage that you also want to know, and if you've been through our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours and some of our other materials, this, may, this will be a review material. But there's a strange uh, uh, additional law in the Torah that has to do with the daughters of Zelophehad. There's a 
Torah has an exception on the rules of inheritance. In Numbers 27, the first 11 verses, Zelophehad has five daughters, no sons, and he goes to Moses and he's upset because he knows that when they get in the promised land, he, his family will die out because he has only daughters, no sons to carry the name. So he goes to Moses to say, what do I do? And Moses did the right thing. He didn't answer him. He says, I'll go pray about it. How often we just jump to a conclusion. No, Moses, he went to the Lord, and the Lord told him to make an exception. So he does, and that's recorded in Numbers 27. Later on, when they enter the promised land, under the days of Joshua, these, and they, they spend seven years, and they conquer the land. By the time you get to uh, Joshua 17, these five gals come to Joshua and say, Hey, check out the record. There's an exception for us. That my, our father had no sons, and we are scheduled to inherit Joshua checks the record, finds out they're right. So he grants it. Now what's interesting about this, most people don't... And by the way, I'm startled at how many very, normally very thorough commentaries, and I have hundreds of them, um, miss the point of this in the Torah. If you, if you look up these passages in some of these commentaries, most of them tend to assume that this is, some kind, this is just a quaint law. In the, there are a lot of these quaint laws in the Torah that, that, uh, that govern the, the, the needs of... Uh, a a nomadic encampment uh, in in the wilderness for those 40 years. No, this every detail in the scripture is there by design, and that design always includes, in some way, Jesus Christ. One of the things that you miss, unless you redo some digging, what actually happened when one of these gals who had no, whose father, the father had no sons, when someone married one of those daughters, they would inherit, but the way they did it was the father adopted the, the son-in-law as his son. You'll find that in Ezra 2, verse 61, which is equivalent to Nehemiah 7, 63. You'll find it in Numbers 32, 41. You can compare that in 1 Chronicles 2, verses 21 through 23, and also 35, 34 to 35. The point is, that's the way this operated. And the reason I bring this all out that really startled me uh, to, to have pointed out to me was the claims of Christ hang on this exception. You, you may recall back in Jeremiah 22.30, God pronounced a blood curse on the last king of, the, uh, of, of, of uh, Judah just before the Babylon captivity. By then he's so upset with Jeconiah, who's also called Jehoiachin, by the way, or Kaniah. Those are all the same guy. God says to him, Write this man childless, a man shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now this creates a, a dead end, because the Messiah was supposed to come from the house of Israel, from the house of David, the royal line. Now there's a blood curse on that royal line. And I, as I always say, I like to point out, I always visualize Satan having rejoicing when this happened, because he, he would assume that God somehow shot himself in the foot. And I always visualize God turning to the angel saying, watch this one. Because this all unravels in the New Testament. In the genealogies, Matthew has his genealogies, any Jew would, from Abraham down to David, straightforward. And, uh, but Luke's a different kind of guy. Luke is a uh, Gentile. And he's, his interest is not that he was the line of the tribe of Judah. Luke's interest is that he was a, his humanity, his son of man. So he starts with Adam, Adam down through Noah. And then he goes through the rest uh, to uh, to Abraham. From Abraham to David, the, the two genealogies, of course, are identical. But there's another difference that's even more profound. When you get to the house of David, uh, Matthew, of course, 
like a good Jew, would go through the first surviving son of Bathsheba, Solomon, the royal line, down through Rehoboam, right on down through Jehoiakim, and uh, then, to, then to this cursed line, Jehoiachin, and then a whole string, down to Joseph, who is the legal father of Jesus Christ, but obviously not the blood father. The blood curse stops there, if you will, in that sense. Luke, when he gets to the house of David, takes a strange turn. He doesn't go through Solomon, the first surviving son of Bathsheba. He goes through the second surviving son of Bathsheba, Nathan. Not the prophet Nathan, a son named Nathan. And he goes down to Heli, who is the father of Mary. And, of course, under the, the, the laws of... Apparently, Heli had no sons. And it's in that sense that Joseph marries, not only marries Mary, but becomes adopted by Heli as his uh, son-in-law. And that's in the Greek. If you look at... Um, this uh, uh, at Luke 3, verse 23, in the Greek. It says, Joseph was the son-in-law of Heli. The word is nobizo in the Greek, which means reckoned as by law. So it's interesting that we have Jesus thus of the legal line, but also a bloodline around the blood curse on Jeconiah, but uh, uh, nevertheless our Messiah. All of this God knew in advance. And that's why he could predict in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that it would be by the seed of the woman, which is a contradiction in biology, let alone grammar. And, uh, and of course, in Isaiah, it reaffirms that, it's, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and so forth. Well, let's move on. Um, that was a, bit, a little diversion. Um, the, uh, again, we'll talk about the dignity of the individual. When men strive to, together one with another... And the wife of one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him <laughs> and putteth forth her hand and taketh him <laughs> by the secrets, whatever they are. <laughs> Thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. Whoops. Now we, when you get verse 11, you can't help but kind of smile as you visualize this entanglement. These two guys are striving and one guy's wife um, putteth forth her hand and taketh him by the secrets. <laughs> What's interesting here is that thou shalt cut off her hand. This is this lex talionis, this idea, eye for an eye, tooth for... She gets punished rather severely for trying to help her husband. You wonder, what on earth's going on here? And uh, part of this is because there's an organ of reproduction Involved. Part of this is involved. What she is grabbing is also the place that has the symbol of the covenant. So this is all considered um, an act that's obviously forbidden uh, with some contempt, and uh, because there's contempt for the covenant sign, uh, and also with the law of Leverite marriage, it's, it's tied to that, if you will. Um, the uh, so there's a uh, uh, it's not just indecency here. It, there's a covenant issue involved. And that's uh, so. Um, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it's it's bizarre. But the, but the, again, the underlying yardstick that helps unravel this is the recognition that it's the, not just that it's the dignity of the individual, and it's also God protecting the sign of the covenant. Strangely enough, strange as it may seem to our our eyes. Moving on, you shouldn't cheat. Here it's saying, "Thou shalt not have in thy bag divers weights, great and great and small." You know, in other words, you have a small weights when you're receiving and use heavy weights when you're shipping, and that's, no, that's cheating. You need the same weights. You, it, it, it's, it, you want honest weights and measures. Thou shalt not have in thine house divers measures, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, 
a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. And so it's uh, integrity is expected in the home, of course, but also the marketplace. We're dealing here with the marketplace, and even there we expect integrity. This leads to some other issues that astonishes me to discover that many Christians are not sensitive to the fact there's two basic relationships in the, in the marketplace. Uh, one of them is what is commonly called an arm's-length relationship. And even that has to be honest. And there is a concept of caveat emptor and caveat vendor. Let the buyer beware or let the seller beware. And letting the buyer beware is the, is the basis of most English common law in our country, and that means that uh, you think very carefully before you buy it, but you, 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 uh, you're responsible for having bought it. Uh, there's a tendency in, in the legal system to flip that over, and that's really scary. Let the seller beware. Which, uh, it gets to the point where if you move to the caveat vendor kind of world, you're going to have manufacturers that are not going to manufacture what you need or what you want. Because a good example of that is the medical profession. Hundreds of doctors are leaving the medical profession. Their, 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 their um, malpractice insurance costs over 100 grand a year because of the runaway awards by juries. The insurance companies have to raise the premiums. The premiums get so high the doctors can't afford. You got a situation. Uh, the root problem is the runaway courts, not capping these things. They don't have these problems in Britain, or, or because they have caps and limitations as to what some of these things can be awarded. And so the thing can stay under control. But caveat vendor is very hairy. We're starting to see some of the auto industry. There's all kinds of things that you may really not want, but the regulations require it and so forth. So, so it's, it's interesting that they're, 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 they're... But all of these are in what they call arm's length. The, the more interesting area, the more relevant area to all of us is the fiduciary area. Instead of arm's length, there's a fiduciary relationship. That's the kind of relationship between a doctor and a patient. What it means is that the doctor is supposed to put the patient's needs ahead of his own. And that's the same thing that an attorney is meant to do. He should be putting his, his client's needs ahead of his own. That's what the word fiduciary means, putting the other's interests ahead of your own. That's what the word professional means in some of these uh, 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 communities. And interestingly enough, Ephesians 6.5 requires an employee to serve his employer with the singleness of heart. You know, most employees owe their employer an hour's work for an hour's pay, and that's it. Uh, not a Christian. A Christian uh, needs to serve his employer with singleness of heart in the sense of being a fiduciary, putting the employer's interests, uh, he has to be at it wholeheartedly, not just uh, performing the letter of the law, if you will. And uh, the word koinonia, by the way, is the Greek word for fiduciary. That's not why we call it Koinia House, but because it means also communication or communion, but embraces the concept of fiduciary. So that was a fortuitous discovery because that's a, one of our pet issues. But let's move on. Uh, he continues here. Um, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come, out, come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Uh, Remember, that was the place when Moses' hands were too heavy, they had to hold him up, you know, and so forth. Uh, Aaron and Hur, the two guys that held up his arms, because when he held up, they won the battle. When his arms started to drop, 
uh, they would lose, so they had two guys <laughs> hold up his arms. Very famous event. But the, what Amalek's strategy was to get the hindermost, the ones that were weak and informed and so forth. And the mistreatment of widows, orphans, immigrants, and so forth was very, very, all the way through the tor- Deuteronomy, we find that echoed in all these things specifically. And uh, it's interesting that the, the um, treatment of the poor and needy um, is always an index, if you will, to the sins of the society at large. And, uh, that's, and, and the prophets will deal with that all the way through the prophets in subsequent centuries will harp on this whole issue. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and thou shalt not forget it. Wow. So you see, in Exodus 17, there's a, a charge by God to exterminate Amalek. So God's upset with Amal- Amalekites. And so, the, uh, so the, uh, you know, this, uh, throughout all these instructions by Moses, um, and uh, there are, there, 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 the Israelites are constantly encouraged to express their wholehearted devotion uh, to God in their daily lives. And uh, so, and, be, and therefore there's also promises of his mercy and his graciousness, uh, as well as, uh, as, as warnings all through these, these passages. But, uh, see, it's in this way that the relationships are not only established, but they're maintained then. It's one thing to come down the sawdust trail and accept Jesus Christ. It's quite another to walk the walk and, uh, and not just talk the talk. And uh, so these, all these promises in here are intended to encourage them to maintain that posture uh, over the long haul. The name of the game is finishing well. Not just, it's not just the starting gate, it's how you finish the game that counts. And so these promises are all through here intended to uh, be a stimulant to their total pattern of living. And uh, so, okay, Deuteronomy 26. And it shall be when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance and possesseth it and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee and shall put it in a basket and thou shalt go into a place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. By the way, what we're going to do now is we're going to encounter here as, the, as, as we get late in the, we're getting very late in the book of Deuteronomy a couple of major prayers or confessions or professions or confessions if you will. And uh, Moses has gone ahead and delineated uh, the rights and obligations of his people uh, in their divine relationship. And now he, he, uh, Moses gives them, in effect, uh, two liturgies or confessions to, to, uh, to reaffirm their posture in the covenant. And uh, so the first confession, which is uh, we're going into here, is the offering of what they call the first fruits. And uh, these are, you'll find elements of these in each of the feasts of Israel. And, and these are detailed in Deuteronomy 16. We talked about that back there. And uh, an example of that, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, there was a sheaf of the first fruits are waved, and that's in Leviticus 23 from verse 10 and following. But also there's a little mix-up. The, there's, the, the, there's the Feast of Weeks, which is the... See, what they did is... Uh, everybody misses this unless you look at it very carefully. Um, in Leviticus 23, 
there is a feast of first fruits that occurs on the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, called the Feast of First Fruits. What many commentators miss is also what they do on that day, they count what they call the counting of the Omer. They count 49 days, in other words, seven weeks, and then the following day is, a, a, uh, uh, again, a, a Feast of First Fruits. So uh, it's, it's uh, what they call the Feast of Weeks. We call it the Feast of Pentecost. It's always on a Sunday because it's the morning after Shabbat. How interesting it is. It's, it's a very interesting feast for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the only feast in the Torah in which leavened bread is allowed. In fact, there's two loaves and leavened bread. Uh, everything, everything else is unleavened. It gives it almost a Gentile flavor. And the Feast of uh, Weeks, or Shavuot, if you will, is uh, uh, the day that prophesies, in effect, it's the, it's, the, it's the advance, if you will, of the Feast of Pentecost, as we call it in the Greek. It's where the Holy Spirit was given, where the church is born. And there are some that suspect that the church will also be raptured on its birthday, but that's speculation. And it's, it's interesting speculation, but it's speculation nonetheless. Um, okay. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days and say to him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God that I am come into the country which the Lord swear unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. So this is, the whole concept here is the first fruits of whatever it is, whether it's the grain or the fruit or whatever, the first fruits are, are brought as an offering, uh, not just to provide sustenance for the uh, temple and so forth, but to acknowledge that whatever you've gotten has come from the hand of God. That's basically the underlying thing. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. The Syrian here that it's referred to is actually in the Greek, or in Hebrew, it's the wandering Aramean. And... Uh, it, it, the word in the Hebrew connotes lost or in peril. Now, he's an Aramean because of the geography, not because of his race, because we're talking about Jacob here. Jacob was not an Aramean, but he sojourned in, in Aramean. That's where his origins were geographically, not ethnically. And don't let that confuse you. Jacob uh, uh, sojourned in uh, Aram Naharim, which we call Mesopotamia. And... Uh, during the birth of his sons, if you will, and uh, uh, the, which were the tribal leaders in Israel. And he fled from his home in Beersheba, you may recall, passed through Syria or Aram to Mesopotamia to live with Laban, his uncle. And then the returning from there, he was overtaken by Laban uh, when he came through Syria at the Jabbok River. And uh, there he was also uh, where he, he encountered the wrath of Esau, his brother, that he defrauded so many years earlier. And so... And later, the famine in Canaan necessitated his migration to Egypt, and so and so forth. So, it's out when you say Syrian. Well, what's all this about? Well, that's that's in the Hebrew. It's Aramean, and it, it's not. It's speaking of the geography, not the ethnic. It's referring to to uh, to uh, Jacob. He's saying uh, that um, uh, uh, Jacob was ready to perish and was my father, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there with a the few and became there a nation great and mighty. They went down as a family under Joseph, of course. You all know the story that closed the book of Genesis. They came out as a nation because they go in there as a family that closed the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus deals with, by then they'd become so populous, they came, get delivered by chapter 12 on that, uh, as, as a nation. The, Israel is spoken of as having been born in Egypt. As, as, that's where the nation, they come out as a nation. Uh, 
Anyway, and the Egyptians' evil threatened us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage, of course. And when we cried unto the Lord, of God, the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and wonders. You know, it's understandable why Moses would, of course, focus on this because that was their heritage. That was something that should be in the, in the memory of... They, they're the first generation of the people that actually experienced all that. So... Um, but it's interesting that aside from the Torah and aside from these days of Moses and so forth, all through the scripture, the prophets centuries later, constant, God constantly used his deliverance of Egypt out of the Exodus as his badge of authority. It's astonishing to really recognize how often uh, throughout the, the prophets, uh, centuries later, this, the, the Exodus from Egypt, these dramatic miracles, uh, the signs and wonders that were involved, God constantly uh, refers to as his uh, handiwork, as, as, his, as, his, as his emblem of authority, so to speak. And uh, so it's, a, it's, 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 and of course it is, <laughs> it's an interesting episode, a series of episodes, because it's as if God is going out of his way to be dramatic. Each one of those things are, are uh, it's, it, he almost is setting the stage I don't want to say this irreverently. Don't you don't 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 misunderstand what I'm trying to say. It's almost as if he's showing off. It's almost as if he's he's setting it up to, you know, to to, to make a point. And uh, nine of them before the tenth, the death of the firstborn, and they're in groups of three. They're very well organized. There's a whole study you can get into if you want to get into Exodus 12, following the study of the the different um, uh, uh, plagues that came upon Egypt. And of course, the tenth was of course the death of the firstborn, and so forth. You know, it's interesting. The book, uh, I mean, the movie, the Ten Commandments. Uh, DeMille doesn't do too bad a job on a lot of it, but there is one very misleading aspect to the way the movie goes because you get the impression that the death of the firstborn came because of Pharaoh's threat to Moses' firstborn and, and uh, that it's sort of a, an echo back. That's, that's misleading because the, 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 while they did research on a lot of things very thoroughly, they missed a key point. God predicted that in the beginning when he called Moses that it would take the death of the firstborn before he let him go. So it wasn't a surprise. It was something that God knew was coming, and he, 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 he builds up to that, uh, knowing that it would take that before Pharaoh would let them finally go. And even then, of course, he chases them, and you know the story. And uh, so anyway, um, so the Lord brought us, uh, brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness, or awesomeness more precisely, and with signs and with wonders, and hath brought us unto this place, and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which, the, which thou, O Lord, hast given me, and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. Now, this is Moses laying down a procedure, a liturgy, a, a prayer that they should do when they do the first, first fruits. But the point is that it's not just the first fruits of the land. It's, it's testimony that God has brought us here in, in the comprehensive sense. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee and unto thine house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. You know, one of the things that I found myself doing in recent times, for some reason, I'm very conscious of it, every time something good happens, I try to remind myself that every good thing comes from his hand. I don't believe there's any good thing that comes your way that isn't 
by God's hand. I could support that from Scripture, but that's neither here nor there. I just uh, I encourage you to think of it that whenever, whenever something happens that's good, little things as well as the big. In fact, the little ones are probably even more indicative in some respects. Um, but all of them demonstrate that God loves us. God's in control. That he cares. I also believe that every day he finds a new way to ask you a question. And the question is, do you trust me? Some of the most bizarre setbacks you can imagine. Take complexion. If you remember that they're God-filtered, they're Father-filtered. It couldn't come your way, but that he had a purpose in it. You say, gee, Chuck, what about the really dark times? The dark times even more so. The dark times are his call to intimacy. And if you are going through dark times, I can think of no better um, exploration than na- my wife's third book in her trilogy. My name's on the book, but it's really her handiwork. Called Faith in the Night Seasons. There are night seasons. There is a dark night of the soul, a dark night of the spirit. Not much written about it in recent years. That's why Nan did the research she did. Uh, John Ankerberg once commented when he first saw it. He says, that book is God-breathed. He doesn't say that casually. He's a very serious author himself. So, but, um, so if you're going through dark times, there, every good thing comes from God's hand, yes, and the trouble too for, for our learning. For our, There are about at least ten different reasons why Christians have trials for our growth, for our testing, for all kinds of reasons. But uh, God is in every one of them. When thou hast made an end of tithing... All the tithes of thine increase the third year. Now, this is a special tithe we're talking about here. Uh, tithes of thine increase of the third year, which is the year of tithing, and hast given it unto the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled. Now, this is the third year tithe is to the poor and needy. And it's interesting, this was not brought to the central sanctuary. Most of the other previous ones, they went to the priest. No, this is given directly to the immigrant, the orphan, the Levite, or the widow in the local community. And uh, it's interesting. It's not every year. It's on the third year, which is the year of tithing. It's given to the Levite, the stranger, the fathers, the widow, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled. Then thou shalt say before the Lord thy God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house, and also have given them unto the Levite, and unto the stranger, and the fathers, and to the widow, according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded me. I have not transgressed thy commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have not eaten thereof in my morning, neither have I taken away aught thereof for any unclean use, nor given aught thereof for the dead. This is referring to the pagan practices uh, that they were to avoid. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that thou hast commanded me. It's interesting, this idea of giving offerings and things for the dead. I realize that there are prominent denominations that indulge, Russia's a prominent groups that indulge in those kinds of things, but clearly they're not biblical. And uh, it's, it's a carryover from paganism, interestingly enough. And uh, so... Anyway, what, he, what he's asserting here, the Israelite asserting here is that these things have been carefully avoided. That's really what he's, he's uh, going through here. This is amplified in Leviticus 22, Numbers 19, also Hosea 9.4 and other places. But the uh, worship continues. But it says, Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven and bless thy people Israel 
and the land which thou hast given us, as thou swearest unto our fathers, a land that floweth with milk and honey. You know, another thing that we see, this, this of course, is the prayer that, that Moses is, is laying down as a pattern for them to, to accompany their tithes and so forth. But it's interesting, all the way through here, there's another subtlety I want to highlight. So look down from the holy habitation, God, from, from heaven, and bless thy people Israel, and the land which thou hast given us, as thou swearest unto our fathers, a land that floweth with milk and honey. Don't miss the fact that all through here, there's the repeated acknowledgement that God is doing what he said he would. One of the fundamental insights in understanding the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, the God of the Old Testament, as some of us might call him, um, is that he's a God that delights in making and then keeping his promises. And I underscore that because that's an attribute that God seems to uh, put forth with great uh, emphasis all through the scripture, cover to cover. The reason I emphasize it for a second reason is the opposite of Allah. Allah of Islam is a, uh, is a concept put forth in which he can do anything. He's capricious. He is not bound by any rules. He does not extol the idea of telling the truth. In fact, he, uh, in Islam, they encourage you to use whatever means it takes to win. Uh, Muhammad made a treaty with his own tribe, the Quraysh tribe, when he was too weak to do anything else. As soon as he was strong enough, about two years later, he slaughters, he violates the treaty, he slaughters the, the, his tri- own tribe. And uh, what's interesting about that, it's not just an incident of history, it's one that's celebrated in Islam. Yasser Arafat in some of his speeches to his people emphasized, don't worry about some of the promises I've made. And he alludes to that as an example, that you say what you need to say, but you do what you need to do for Islam to win. This Western ethic of my word is my bond is a Western ethic. It is, not, it is foreign to the concept of Islam. It's hard for us to really understand that unless you study it carefully. But clearly the God of the Bible is a God who binds himself to covenants. He binds himself to rules he sets down and sticks with them. And he's proud of the fact that he, he does that. It's called integrity. And uh, it's a God that we can count on. It's interesting that in Islam there are no assurances, even of, of salvation. And uh, uh, there's some very interesting quotes from Abu Bakr, the descendant of, Muslim, of Muhammad and so forth, uh, that uh, there is no there is no certainties. There are no certainties. The highest certainty comes if you die while trying to kill an infidel. But other than that, uh, the, the 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 hadith and the Quran are they provide no certain assurances. Anyway, moving on. Remember that the the Quran is a warrior code. The whole thing is about uh, waging war on the unbelievers. All comers. Anyway, verse 16, This day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thy heart and with all thy soul. This is the emphasis that the book opened with, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy strength. And when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he quotes the Hebrew Shema, but he adds something. He adds a fourth issue. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and all thy strength. The word, the word volition is also in there. But the point is, in the opening of Deuteronomy, and as we start getting to the close here, we find this underscoring that the whole, all these rules, all these little 
some of them obvious, some of them straightforward, some of them rather quaint, are all there for their own good in, on the one hand, but also to be a, a demonstration that they love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, and all their mind. And uh, thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments. They're different, but we won't split hairs here. And his judgments and hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people as he hath promised thee that thou shouldest keep all his commandments. See, this whole thing is like a contract. See, on the one hand, you've agreed. He's saying, Moses is saying to his people, you've agreed. You've avouched the Lord this day to be that the, this day. Uh, the, the, thou avouched the Lord this day to be thy God, to walk in his ways. And as you, you're going to honor him with your obedience to his statutes, commandments, and judgments and hearken to his voice. And the Lord, in reciprocity, so to speak, hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee that thou shouldest keep all his commandments. The people of Israel are absolutely unique on the planet Earth. There's no other people of any genealogy or of any other geography that enjoy the uniqueness that Israel does. And that's something the world resents. That's something... Well, they resent it for a lot deeper reasons than that, too, but they, they resent that. There's a deeper resentment of the, the God of this world and that he's... he's he is going to be uh, uh, vanquished by the Redeemer that came out of all of this. So he has, he has a, a whole handful of adversarial positions that uh, cause the hatred that occurs to, to, uh, to Israel and uh, Christian believers. And to make thee high, God continuing, or Moses continuing uh, you know, to God, and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God as he hath spoken. So, this is, uh, uh, um, I'm not sure, I, I feel that I may have been delinquent in some of the earlier chapters of not underscoring this whole aspect of the book of Deuteronomy. It's really a series of sermons by Moses, but it also is a reconfirmation of what you and I would view as a contract or a covenant in which God is God and, and, and Israel is his peculiar people and there are obligations both ways. The obligation of God is to make good his word and his blessings and his promises and give him the land, which is the primary thing in their market right now, but all the rest of it, victory over their enemies and, and good harvests and so on. Um, but what they're required to do is to represent him faithfully. That when people see their behavior, they'll understand what the God of Israel is all about. And uh, uh, it's tragic in a sense that many people get the impression that the God of the Old Testament is a God of rules, a God of laws, a God of rigorous, detailed uh, uh, enforcements of different kinds, rather than the God that is there, a God of mercy. God who loves mercy and, and all he wants is to walk justly in, in, in before him. Uh, it's tragic that on the one hand, uh, the, the, uh, the Orthodox Hasidic community and so forth presents an image of God that I think is less than complete in many ways, obviously. 
Uh, at the same time, when I say that, I want to quickly underscore Christians are a little better. Uh, we have a tendency to present God. We, 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 we really don't understand holiness. We really don't dwell on the reality that God is holy and that God wants us to be holy, not by being perfect and obeying the laws, but by being holy in our heart, holy committed to him, because he went ahead and paid the price so that we have the freedom to do that. We're not in bondage of the law or anything else. One or the other, we somehow need to really understand the first half a dozen chapters of the book of Romans. And finally, of course, climax in chapter 8. But that, that book of Romans, is, is the first half of it is crucial to understanding. It's basic foundational stuff. But again, our, our mission is no different, really, in a sense, than the mission of Israel. And that's to represent God to the world. They were to do it in their way, and they failed miserably. We are to do it in our way, and we're failing miserably too, in large measure. And we, that should grieve us, and we should prayerfully seek uh, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so, so there we have uh, the conclusion of session 12. Uh, we have um, uh, four sessions left, in two, and we'll do that in two evenings. And... Uh, that will complete our exploration of the book of Deuteronomy. I want to remind you as we go through this book to recognize it is the book that Jesus quoted from more than any other of the books. He quoted from all five books of Moses and attributed it to Moses. So you have no problem with authorship unless you are trying to write a, a term paper for a liberal seminary. Uh, <laughs> heaven help you. But, but uh, uh, if, you, uh, if you want to know who wrote the books of Moses, obviously Jesus told us. But he quotes from Deuteronomy. Apparently, it's his favorite book. When he was confronted by Satan, the famous temptations, he quoted from Deuteronomy. So it's a great book. And uh, I hope it's fine, you're finding it rewarding. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for the opportunities we have. We thank you for your word. Oh, and Father, we thank you that you're a God of integrity, a God who makes and keeps his promises. We do pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, that you would help us also to be a people of integrity. If for no other reason, Father, we, that we might more faithfully represent you. So when people see us, they will understand more of you and not focus on our shortcomings, which are many. So, Father, we just thank you for being who you are. We thank you that you're a God of integrity. We thank you that you're a God of holiness, but above all, Father, we thank you that you're a God of mercy, because we do not seek justice, for we are sinners. We seek your mercy, Father, and we thank you that through Jesus Christ you can give it. We thank you, Father, that Jesus availed to make us able to come to you. But we're also grateful, Father, that Jesus made it possible for you to forgive us without violating your holiness. We thank you, Father, for the incredible access we have, the incredible salvation that you provided us. We thank you, Father, that we have no good thing, large or small, that doesn't come from your hand. So, Father, we come before your throne, confessing our sins of ingratitude. As we go through life, we fail to appreciate the giver of all the gifts we enjoy. 
We also confess our sins of presumption as we presume upon your grace and your mercy. Help us, Father, to see our sinful nature. And yes, confess it that you might cleanse us and heal us. But help us, Father, to really understand the extremes that you have gone to that we might live and that we might have fellowship with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray, Father, you would increase in each of us a hunger, an appetite for your word, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives. We pray, Father, that you would illuminate precisely what you would have of each of us in the days that remain. But above all, Father, help us to have a heart totally and completely committed to you without any reservation as we commit, not just this evening, but ourselves, into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to The Bible 126 Show. 